The sermon text reading this week comes from Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that you, your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, before we turn to our sermon text, uh, I thought I would want to be at the beginning of the sermon to express my thanks to this congregation. Uh, if you know me, I am pretty sentimental, and a year ago, uh, I was ordained install and installed as one of the pastors here. And typically, when a church calls another pastor, they really look for someone with a lot of experience, uh, and your elders were like, forget about all that. And we'll bring Demiron. Uh, and I just want to thank you for your kindness to me and my family, and maybe more importantly, your patience. Uh, you took someone whom you didn't know, um, who you have never really interacted with, and you allowed to be one of your pastors. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. So again, thank you from the bottom of my heart, and it's been a joy uh, to serve this local congregation. Well, this morning is the beginning of what is called the Advent season. If you are new to Advent or you have never heard that word before, the word Advent simply means arrival, simply means coming. It's a season where we as a church intentionally think about and consider the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of how God himself has come to us to be among us, to be one of us in order that he might save us from our sins. But it's also, it's not only a season where we think about the first coming of Christ, it's also a season where we think and consider the second coming of Christ. Christ has come and Christ will come again. The season of Advent is all about waiting. God's people have always been defined by waiting. In the Old Testament, God's people waited for the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in the New Testament, and up until this point now, we wait for His second coming. In both cases, God's people live in light of Christ's advent. And so for these next four Sundays, we are going to see God's people waiting for the coming of Christ. And I pray, we pray by God's grace, that it will help us wait in faith as we eagerly anticipate the second coming of Christ. And so this morning, we come to Psalm 80. And in Psalm 80, we find God's people suffering because of their sin. The people of God find themselves in a very troubling situation, one that is the result of their own wrongdoing. Now, there's a lot about this psalm that we don't know. There is significant debate concerning the events that led to the writing of this psalm. But the language of the psalm, at least in my opinion, suggests that this was written in light of Israel being conquered by the Assyrians in 721 BC, which resulted in them being sent into exile. Imagine being pulled away from the only home that you have ever known. Imagine you look at your nation and it's just left in ruins and you have to live amongst enemies who constantly mock and taunt you for your once great nation. This is what took place during the captivity of Israel in 721 BC. But again, we don't know that for certain, but what we do know is that God's people are experiencing the hand of discipline from their heavenly father because of their sins. The people of God have made a mess of themselves and they collectively cry out for God to restore his people. God's people need to be saved, not from foreign enemies, but they need to be saved from themselves. The source of their trouble is not out there, but it is in here. And they need God to come and fix them. Throughout this psalm, there is a chorus that is repeated in verses 3, 7, and 19. And the chorus is, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the main theme of this psalm. God's people are asking him to restore them, to no longer remember their sins, but to shine his face upon them so that they might receive his favor and be saved. In this chorus, we hear the famous words that we hear at the end of every, or most Sundays here at Redeemer, the ironic benediction in number, Numbers chapter 6, where we hear the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The psalmist is asking the Lord to smile upon his people again, to look upon them favorably and to give them peace. If we're having, hey fellas, if we're having problems with the sound, I could come to this mic. Are, you, are we having problems with the sound? Yes or no? Can y'all respond to me? Y'all are good? Never mind. So and what I want you to know walking away from this psalm, or from this psalm, is that as we walk through this psalm, and as we think about Advent, as we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be reminded or maybe learn for the first time that Christ has come for a people 
who have made a mess of their lives. He has come for those whose lives have been wrecked and ravaged by sin. He has come for those who need more than a second chance. For those who are experiencing the devastating effects of sin, He has come to bring restoration to sinners. One thing to know about me is that I am not handy at all, meaning that if something is broken in my house, I feel no shame in calling someone who has the ability to fix what is wrong in my house. Uh, many people are like, how about you just watch a YouTube video? And my first mind is like, why would I do that? But what I am, I am pretty fascinated by home renovation shows or home restoration projects. It's remarkable, at least to me, when someone can take a house that was once run down and abandoned over a period of years, again, it was once beautiful but is now abandoned, and over time they fix it up and they make it into something that is simply stunning. They take this once run down house and restore it to a condition that sometimes even surpasses its former glory. And friends, that's exactly what God does for His people in the gospel. He takes the people who have been run down and ransacked by sin, shame, and regret, and He restores them and brings them to a condition that surpasses their former glory. So this morning we come to Psalm 80, and we are going to see how God brings this restoration that His people so desperately need. And this psalm is broken up to four stanzas, and we'll look at these stanzas one by one. So stanza one is the plea, stanza two is the pain, stanza three is the perplexity, and then stanza four is the prayer. So the plea, the pain, the perplexity, and the prayer. So first, the plea. The writer Asaph begins this psalm by calling upon the name of the Lord. In the midst of this national crisis in the life of Israel, he doesn't run away from God, but instead he turns towards God and makes a plea for restoration. And if you notice the language of the text, this plea is quite bold. It's a desperate cry for help filled with imperatives that are all directed towards Almighty God. Give ear, shine forth, Listen, come and save us. The psalmist is making demands of God. Now, that might seem strange to us, but when you're in a really desperate situation, you will be surprised how direct your prayers will be. These demands are not rooted in pride but they are rooted in a sincere faith. These demands proceed from what the writer knows to be true about his God. And he tells us two truths about God in this first stanza. First, that God is the shepherd of Israel. And first, yeah, God is the shepherd of Israel. And then second, that God is a mighty king. So take a look at verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. He begins his prayer by calling God the shepherd of Israel. He's not praying to a distant stranger or a distant deity. No, he's praying to a loving shepherd whom he belongs to. The Lord is our shepherd, 
and we are his sheep. This describes the special affection and care that God has for his people. That as our shepherd, he directs and leads and guides his sheep. Of course, this is something that is not new concerning God, but this is something that God has always been for his people. That reference to Joseph points back to Genesis 48, which is the first time that God is called a shepherd. This is who he's always been and who he will always be. And because of that, the writer calls upon God in the midst of his distress. Boys and girls, kids, if you are in trouble, who would you rather call? The strange person that is walking down the street or your parents? You would rightly call upon your parents. Why? Because they know you because they can protect you, because they can take care of you. And that's exactly what the psalmist is telling us about God. He's appealing to the one that he has a special relationship with. But not only is God, he declares that God is his shepherd, but he is also calling upon God as a mighty king. He says that God is enthroned upon the cherubim. This is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which we have seen so often in the book of 1 Samuel, and this was the symbolic representation that God was present among his people, that on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim with with outstretched wings, and it was there where God was enthroned in the midst of his people, ruling as their mighty king. And the psalmist calls upon God not because, not only because he cares for his people, but also because as he, as a mighty king, he can do something about the situation that they have found themselves in. He asks the Lord to shine forth, to smile upon his people once again. In verse 2, he mentions Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, which is a, a way to speak of God's people as a whole, and he pleads with God to stir up his might and to come and save us. The psalmist knows that the only hope that he has and the only hope of God's people is found in God acting on their behalf. This is the psalmist's plea, but notice that this plea comes from a place of pain that God's people are experiencing. And that brings us to our second stanza, the pain, the pain. In verses four to six, the focus of the psalm shifts to the pain that God's people are experiencing. Take a look at verses 4 to 6. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Notice that the psalmist admits that this is something that the Lord has done. If you were to come and ask the psalmist, who has caused all this pain in your life, he wouldn't say his enemies, but he would say that the Lord has done this. God is refusing to answer the prayers of his people. The text goes as far as to say that he is angry with their prayers, which is likely because of their hypocrisy. He's fed them with the main course of tears, with the side of tears, and then they wash all of that down with a cold cup of tears. 
He's made them the object of animosity amongst their neighbors, and they are now the laughing stock of their enemies. The enemies of God would snicker and post on social media of how far the nation of Israel has fallen. And again, the psalmist doesn't ask why, at least not here, because he knows why. You see, God told his people that this would happen to them if they did not turn from their sin and idolatry. And throughout the Old Testament, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to warn Israel of her sin and call her back to repentance and faith, but Israel was too stubborn to listen. And she would not heed the voice of her God, and because of this, judgment fell. This is the discipline of God. Friends, God as a loving father disciplines his beloved children. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Beloved, this is a reminder that you and I cannot live in any old way and think that it will not have a negative effect on our relationship with the Lord. It is true that God will never forsake his people. He will, his love never ceases, but he will at times discipline his people for their sin. Sin that is unconfessed and unrepented of can cause us to feel as if he is far away, to feel as if he has truly abandoned us. Think about it in this way. Imagine that you fall asleep in a rowboat in a sizable lake. It's a beautiful summer day and you doze off while laying down in the boat and staring at the blue sky. And after you wake up, you wipe away the drool from your mouth, look at the shoreline and you realize that it's much further away than you remember. You might be tempted to believe that the shoreline was the one that moved away from you, but that cannot be true. The shoreline is always constant. The shoreline doesn't move, it never changes. No, the distance is because the boat over time drifted further and further away from the shoreline. It is because we have drifted away from God that we feel this loss of communion with God, and God lovingly disciplines us, and we experientially feel as if he has forsaken us. And this occurs so that you and I might confess our sin and go back to the Lord. The psalmist wants to know how long will the heavy hand of God's discipline be upon his people? How long before he removes the pain that his people are currently experiencing? We've seen the plea, the pain, and now for the third stanza, the perplexity, perplexity. Beginning in verse 8, we sense the perplexity of the psalmist. The psalmist is struggling to reconcile what he knows to be true about God and what God's people are experiencing. And he does this by recalling the history of Israel. Take a look at verses 8 through 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedar with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots 
to the river. The writer describes Israel as a vine. Grapes were a staple in the life of Israel and in the ancient Near East, so it was important for the vines to be taken care of properly. They required this special attention in order for them to bear true and lasting fruit. And throughout Scripture, in places like Isaiah and Amos and then going into the New Testament, Israel is referred to as a vine. And here the psalmist tells us how God the vine dresser takes care of his beloved vine. He took Israel out of Egypt and freed them from slavery and placed them in the fertile soil of the promised land. He cleared out all of their enemies so that they might rest secure in the land. And under God's watchful care, his vine grew like a mighty plant covering mountains with its shade and extending as far as to the river and the sea. See, the writer is recalling how Israel was flourishing under the hand of God through the reign of King David and King Solomon, of how Israel flourished and became a mighty nation that blessed other nations, that other nations would come and experience the glory of Israel. The psalmist is recalling the glory years of Israel. But all of that changes. Take a look at verses 12 to 13. Why then have you broken down its wall, so that all who pass along the way plucks its fruits? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. The Lord is saying, or the psalmist is saying, Lord, we were once this fruitful and flourishing vine. We were once this vine that you took care of and allowed to grow strong, but now our walls are broken. Our enemies steal our fruits. Wild animals and foreign enemies come and ravage everything and feed upon it. You can imagine that the psalmist is walking through the destruction of the land and saying, Lord, why have you allowed for this to happen? Why did you raise us up so high just to bring us down so low? Why did you exalt us in the eyes of the other nations just to humiliate us before them? Why bless us so uniquely and so gloriously and at the same time allow for our sin to allow us to be plundered by our enemies? Psalmist is perplexed because what he understands to be true about God is not reconciling with his current experience. That the destruction that he sees in the land does not fit with what he understands to be true concerning God's faithfulness to his people. It brings to mind the words of Psalm 77, which is another psalm written by Asaph. Will the Lord spurn anger forever? and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Beloved, have you ever been perplexed by God? Have you ever, even in the quiet of your heart where nobody knows, asked the Lord, why? Lord, why give a child only to take him or her away? 
Lord, why bring me to this new place only for my life to fall apart? Lord, why have you allowed my marriage to be brought so low? Lord, why give me something that I prayed for only to just take it away? Friend, if you live the Christian life long enough, you'll be perplexed by God. You'll ask questions like, why, O oh Lord? But the psalmist but, but the psalmist is perplexed because he doesn't always know what the Lord refuses, but at the same time, he still cries out to the Lord, refusing to let him go because he is good and he saves all those who call upon his name. Like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. The psalmist is certainly perplexed, but he does not drive himself to despair. Why? It's because he doesn't allow what he doesn't know to affect what he does know. He may not know why God is doing what he's doing, but he does know who this God is. He knows that this God is the shepherd of his people. He knows that this God is the mighty king of Israel. He knows that this God has promised never to forsake his people. He knows that this God will discipline his people for, his, for their sin, but his steadfast love never ceases. These truths don't answer the psalmist's questions. They don't dismiss his perplexity, but they do keep him from being driven to despair. Beloved, there's a lot that we do not know, but don't let what you don't know affect what you do know. And what do you know? You know that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that he comes to you not in judgment because judgment has been poured out on Jesus Christ. You know that he is a heavenly father who loves you, who often works in mysterious ways. As the hymn writer says, and I've quoted this a number of times here at Redeemer, but it's just, just that good. The hymn writer says, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storms. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Just not by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind his frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. Brothers and sisters, we've seen the plea, the pain, the perplexity. And now lastly, in the last stanza, we see the prayer. The prayer, the psalmist concludes with a prayer. And he asked the Lord, like he's been doing throughout the rest of the psalm, for the Lord to restore his people and to make them faithful once again. Take a look at verses 14 to 18. Turn it again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, the stock that your hand, right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They, speaking of the enemies, have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life 
and we will call upon your name. The psalmist simply asked God to look down upon his people and to have regard for the vine that he has planted, to restore us and to make us strong, to defeat our enemies who have crushed us. And when you do all of that, we will be your faithful people. We will call upon your name like we always should have done. But I want you to pay special attention to, verse, to what he says in verse 17. Well, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. This is a prayer that God would raise up a king for his people. The psalmist is saying that the restoration of God's people is directly tied to this king because the flourishing of God's people and the well-being of their king are bound together. See, the hope of the psalmist, the hope of this psalm, the hope of God's people is that when this king comes, God's people will be made strong and faithful and they will call upon the name of the Lord. They need a king who will give them life. They need a king who will bring about the restoration that they have so desperately been praying for. And beloved, God answers the prayer of the psalmist by raising up the son of his right hand. God answers the prayer of the psalmist by sending forth Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes and he brings salvation to his people who have been destroyed by sin. One of Jesus' favorite descriptions for himself, a title that he uses more than any other title in the New Testament, is the title, the Son of Man. And this signifies his kingship. And in Daniel 7, we read that it is the Son of Man, the same Son of Man that the psalmist talked about. The same Son of Man that we heard in, in Mark 13, he says that he is one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Israel's kingdom seemed to be toppled over as they are carried off into exile because of their sin. But God raises up Jesus who has a kingdom that will never pass away. But not only does Jesus call himself the son of man, he also calls himself the true vine. John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine, you are, in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Israel was a faithless vine with, with fruit that was being plucked by her enemies. But Jesus is a faithful vine who does what Israel is brought low. He is crushed in the place of sinners, but he was also raised from the dead. And all those who have fellowship with him, all those who have been brought into communion with him, are restored to life and made faithful. How does God answer the prayer of the psalmist? How does he answer this prayer of restore us, O God? Let your face shine upon us. Come to us that we may be saved. He does it 
by giving us Jesus Christ. For in Jesus, we always have the smiling face of God upon us. And this is why we can receive with confidence this blessing from the Lord Sunday after Sunday. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we simply say thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have looked upon our helpless estate. You have looked upon our desperate situation and you have raised up the son of your right hand, Jesus Christ, who brings us life. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would deepen our fellowship with him. And over the course of this Advent season, as we think of your first coming and we eagerly anticipate your second coming, would this in-between time be filled with the fullness of your grace for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.